Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting to you from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, before I get into any stuff about the podcast, I just want you to know how much we are struggling with Mike the Sound Guy working remotely. I've just spent the past 20 fucking minutes trying to figure out why my sound waves weren't looking right. They were very tiny, and the way Mike had me set up, the sound waves are supposed to basically run the entire height of uh, the particular track, and it finally dawned on me after 18 minutes of trying to troubleshoot that the reason why the sound waves were so tiny is because I had forgot to plug in the microphone. It was picking up sound from the internal mic on the laptop, which is why I could still hear me, uh, but the external mic that I was speaking into was unplugged, so it wasn't actually registering anything. So I just want y'all to know that we're struggling here, but we're going to power on, and Mike, as you edit this, just know I desperately need you to come back so we can uh, be in the studio one day. Okay, so folks, we are here. It is Thursday, or it will be Thursday when you get this. We're recording on Wednesday night. I uh, want you to know as a podcast note, these midweek releases are not um, they're not planned for the long term. You might remember from the last podcast, I told you I had a trial on Tuesday, so we didn't do a prep uh, outline prep this past weekend. Uh, that trial is now done. It was a nice not guilty. So we're going to do this uh, today. And then my goal is to do an outline Friday or Saturday so that we can record Sunday before the Super Bowl. Uh, so hopefully we'll be back on a regular Monday rotation beginning on February 3rd or 4th, I guess, whatever Monday is on February. Um, okay, other podcast notes. We are continuing the mini pod format for this episode. Uh, I know, I think it was at Yasugumi on Twitter who said that 45 minutes is not short. It's not a mini pod in the podcast world. Uh, but I don't care about other podcasts because we are the illustrious Fiscamol podcast and we have standards. And as part of those standards, we're usually an hour and a half long because I got to cover all the news. But we are not doing that today. We are continuing the mini pod format. We have 15 stories that we will get through some court stuff, some uh, criminal justice fuckery around the country. No politics because I'm sick of politics at the moment. Um, the what else? Oh, last podcast note. So y'all who have followed us on Twitter know that every few months we have been doing a charity fundraiser for a couple years now. Uh, our first, so we've mapped out the charities for 2019. Uh, we may end up throwing in like a fifth one here or there, but the very first one, we're going to do a fundraiser on Friday, the 1st of February for the TJ Dunaway Scholarship Fund. It's part of a, a nonprofit here in Durham founded by one of my law school classmates. They provide a scholarship to a, a poor student trying to go to college, and they've been doing one student per year because it's still a fairly new thing. They've only been doing it for this is going to be their third year now. So we're going to see if we can help them do more than one student. I'd like to see if they could do you know five, if we can do that. So keep an eye on the Twitter space, uh, on my personal Twitter space. We won't run it off of the fiscal mode. We're going to run it off of my personal one at Greg underscore Doucette. Uh, but just know that is coming on Friday. Uh, on this particular podcast, you're going to get it probably around dinner time. Mike said he has a meeting in the morning, so he's not going to be able to edit it right away. Uh, he's still doing the telecommuting thing, and as part of that, they force him to like Skype in and show that he is, in fact, still alive and working from home. 
Um, so, but what we're going to do on the WordPress is the release time is still going to be set at 4 a.m. so that folks who don't get it and listen right away, uh, it'll look like it was still part of the regular rotation. So just kind of know that. All right. So that is all the podcast notes for this particular episode. Uh, if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account for the podcast is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. The website, if you'd like to leave us a written comment, is Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our financial supporters, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash Fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. All right, so like I said, we're going to skip the political news. The government is back open. The papaya potus is still an asshole, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're going to dive into some of the court news, and you're going to notice a theme as part of several of the stories here. You know, I've mentioned in prior episodes that coming up with the title is often the hardest part of doing this. I mean, in terms of time, the outline takes the most time. But in terms of, like, intellectual effort, it's trying to figure out what the fuck to title these episodes. And every now and again, you know, the the news gods help out by having several stories with a theme. And you'll notice the title for this particular one is Liar Liar, after a hilarious Jim Carrey movie. Um, but it's going to be a theme in a lot of things. So the, the court news this week is out of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, keep in mind, this is the federal appellate circuit. Uh, covers North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia, South Carolina, maybe. I don't really remember. Don't quote me on that. You can Google it. But they released an opinion in the case of Charles Ray Finch versus McCoy. It is a North Carolina case, and instead of putting this in North Carolina, we keep all the appellate case stuff together. Uh, but I'm going to give you a link to the opinion, and I want you to read it all. I'm not going to quote it, because the quotes are too long for it to be, you know, it, it doesn't sink in, I guess I would say. Like, when you read it, you read it, and you're like, holy fuck, I can't believe that happened. Me saying it just doesn't have the same impact, because I read it, and I was like, Jesus, tap dancing Christ, I can't believe this happened. So, essentially, this guy, Charles Finch, he's now 80. He has been in prison for 42 fucking years because of a murder that happened in Wilson, North Carolina. A guy who owned a gas station was murdered by uh, two guys who I guess they were trying to rob the place and killed him in the process. Uh, there was a, another guy who was there who was a witness and survived. And as part of this, there was a trial where Finch, at the time, was actually at a poker game. You discover that as you go through the opinion. He was at a poker game with other people. But somehow Finch was identified as the shooter. And as you go through excerpts from the trial transcript, uh, what you'll find out is, for example, uh, the police, when they first brought in several uh, witnesses, they put in a Finch in a lineup. They did three separate lineups. And in each of those three lineups, they made sure that Finch wore distinctive clothing that no one else had. Now, theoretically, the idea of a lineup is that you put in people that all look the exact same or as close to it as possible to see if a witness can accurately identify the person who did it. And what you'll find if you go through some of the scientific studies is that that generally doesn't happen because eyewitness identifications are ass and you don't really do lineups or what we call six packs where there are six uh, mug shots on the same card. The best way to do it is to show people one picture at a time until they actually see one. 
Uh, but what they did was there was a, a rumor that the guy had a certain hat and a certain shirt. And out of those three lineups, every single one of those three lineups, the police made sure that Finch was the one that had the particularly distinctive article of clothing that jived with what the eyewitness claimed to have seen. The medical examiner lied about how the victim had died. The victim died from a pistol, and the medical examiner claimed at trial that he died from a shotgun. Now, I don't know if any of you are gun enthusiasts. I've mentioned in a prior podcast that I have a Smith & Wesson 9mm. I like to go shooting. I grew up as part of the you know Nintendo duck hunt generation. Um, they leave very different bullet holes in things if you're using a pistol versus a shotgun they're not even close and the way that the state tried to spin it as part of this guy's appeals we're going to get to that in a minute uh but they basically said oh this is this is an incidental error the emmy should have said a gunshot wound and accidentally said a shotgun wound like what the fuck those are two very different things they are materially different so emmy lied Keep in mind, these are all taxpayer-financed people, the police who fucked up the three separate lineups and the medical examiner who misidentified how the victim was killed. But then at trial, the witness who had supposedly identified Finch basically said, wait, that's not the guy. He's not you know, the person that I saw that night. And the police officer, the detective investigating the case, suborned perjury, insisted that the eyewitness take the stand and lie about it. And that actually ended up coming out in an affidavit later. So there's, there's a whole bunch more. Basically, this entire trial was a clusterfuck of clusterfucks. And Finch, after he was convicted, was repeatedly trying to appeal and assert his innocence. And a whole bunch of evidence came out uh, years ago. Like, we're talking back in the 80s. Now, keep in mind, guy's been in prison for 42 years. This conviction was in the 70s. And he's had all this new evidence come up, and what has happened is that all of these various times where he's tried to get a hearing in front of the court, the court has rejected it out of hand. And the basis for it is that if you're trying to assert a claim where there's new evidence, normally you only have a year to bring it up. And the way you get around that is that if you prove that you are actually innocent – then you don't have to worry about that one-year timeline because the notion is we don't keep innocent people in prison. So that ultimately is what this Court of Appeals opinion is about. They have found him actually innocent based on the pleading standards that are put in place. Now, here's where additional fuckery comes in because this appellate court was overruling a trial court denial of having a hearing at all. The trial court never had a hearing. They had the record, and they said, all this shit's too late, so go fuck yourself. And the appellate court said, no, no, based on this record, this guy's actually innocent. You better have a hearing. Well, now the trial court has to have a hearing, which is going to take additional time. Whatever the result of that hearing is, that can be appealed as well. So this guy, who's now 80 years old, has been in prison for 42 years of his life, is still looking at additional years in jail unless the governor decides to pardon him, which isn't going to happen because Roy Cooper's a pussy. I shouldn't say that. I, I, I take that back. Roy Cooper has been very good on certain things, but he doesn't uh, do stuff where it requires moral rectitude. You know what I mean? So it's just a totally fucked up case, and I read it, and I was blown away that the record is so fucked up. Like it's, it's, You have prisoners who have nothing to do you know, in prison. That's just part of how we have it set up. So some of them will actually become quite proficient in the law. When I used to work for the North Carolina State Bar years ago, part of my job was going through prisoner mail. And some of them are quite good. Like they could go to law school after they got out and be excellent lawyers. And you look at this guy and he's had all of this stuff 
And he's had this stuff for decades, man. He's had witnesses recanting in the 80s. He had the the ME fuck-up discovery in the 90s, new affidavits in the 2000s. And the court at every stage just says, go fuck yourself because you're late. Even though if you look at all the stuff, he never should have been convicted in the first place. And he's still facing additional years in prison because of it. It just really disgusts the hell out of me. It really does. So we'll give you a link to the opinion. It's not long. It's only about 18 pages, but you really should go read it in its entirety and just kind of let the the scope of the fuckery soak in. I mean, you got to keep in mind, I'm 37. This guy has been locked up since five years before I was born for a crime that he didn't commit. It's atrocious. Uh, So that's it for the court stuff. In general research news, the Vera Institute for Justice, we've talked about them in several podcasts. They do fantastic work. Uh, They have created a new information tool where they've basically compiled arrest data from departments around the country spanning about 40 years, and you can now actually go search it. And what you find is that the vast bulk of arrests are for bullshit. Uh, So there's a long story in The Intercept talking about this new tool and some highlights. I'm going to give you some excerpts. Quote, someone is arrested in the United States every three seconds. While arrests are the first entryway into a criminal justice system most acknowledges in dire need of reform, we know remarkably little about who was arrested, where, and why. Advocates and legislators have pushed in recent years for policy changes at various points of the justice process, from pretrial to sentencing, but arrests remain one of the largest and least scrutinized contributors to the country's mass incarceration and policing crises. The FBI and Bureau of Justice Statistics collect arrest data from the country's 18,000 law enforcement agencies, but those agencies self-report and on a voluntary basis, and there are significant disparities in the information that they share. The data, for the most part, remains inaccessible to the broader public, and statistics on crime are isolated from data about the effectiveness of enforcement. In an effort to better inform conversations about criminal justice, a team of researchers from the Vera Institute of Justice, a nonprofit research and policy organization, took more than two years to combine eight different federal databases into a tool that allows users to analyze arrest trends at the national, state, and county levels against a series of variables. That data shows that of more than 10.5 million arrests made every year, the bulk are for non-criminal behavior. Let me repeat that again. The bulk are for non-criminal behavior, drug violations, and low-level offenses. Since 1980, arrests for drug violations have increased by 170%, and racial disparities in enforcement have grown even more stark. Still, a majority of victims don't report their experiences to police, and police solve only a fraction of the crimes that are reported. The Veritool analyzes arrest trends between 1980 and 2016, The data shows that overall, arrests have declined by nearly 25% over the last decade, but it also shows that while arrests for serious crimes have dropped consistent with declining crime rates nationwide, they are increasingly being substituted with arrests for minor misconduct. Among the most common causes for arrest are low-level offenses like disorderly conduct and a broad, largely unexplained category the FBI refers to as subquote all other offenses, which can include a variety of non-traffic offenses, violations of local ordinances, and civil violations like failure to pay fines or child support. 
Together with drug violations, these offenses account for more than 80% of arrests, while serious, violent offenses make up less than 5% of arrests. And we'll give you a link to the rest of it. It's a very long story. It goes into great detail, looks at some stuff. And basically what you're having happen is police being bored as fuck because crime is going down. They got to make their quotas. They got to make money for the politicians because the politicians don't want to raise taxes and rely on court costs to fund the government. So they go find shit to arrest people just to put them in the system. And now data confirms what people have been saying uh, you know, via anecdote for years. It's fucking repulsive. Uh, in state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery out of Colorado in Lakewood – we have, you know, I thought about joking that this would be a third rule of Fisk thing with the same guy, but it's kind of disgusting when you think about it. A Lakewood police officer has now been arrested three separate times for sexually assaulting women all in the span of a month. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a former Lakewood police officer convicted of unlawful sexual conduct is facing more allegations that he sexually assaulted women while on duty. Randall Sean Butler. And let me let me back up. Go back to that first paragraph. He's already been convicted of unlawful sexual conduct, but was still on the force to get charged with additional unlawful sexual conduct. Sorry. Uh, Randall Sean Butler turned himself in on January 24th for a new third unlawful sexual conduct charge related to an event from 2014. It's on top of charges he's already facing for sex assault and attempted sex assault charges for two other incidents. According to a press release from Lakewood Police, Randall Sean Butler is accused of engaging in unlawful sexual conduct with a woman while giving her a ride home while he was on duty the evening of July 29th, 2014. He turned himself into the Jefferson County Jail on suspicion of unlawful sexual contact, first degree official misconduct, and official oppression. Now, we're going to give you a link to all three of the arrest stories because one is from uh, a TV station, the other two are from the Denver Post. But from the story of the first charge, which is after this original unlawful sexual conduct conviction, so it's the second accusation, uh, basically, he got a woman drunk, took her home, and tried to rape her in a nutshell. And his explanation was, quote, uh, at first he pushed her away, but then his impulses got the best of him and he ended up having sex with her. Like what? You end up having sex with somebody while you're on duty? You ended up like your dick just happened to slip in. It's so fucking ridiculous. Uh, but we'll give you links to all three of them. That guy's in jail. Hopefully he gets locked up for a long time. This type of shit is ridiculous. Out of Florida in Martin County, we have a bona fide third rule of Fisk story. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions where a man has gone to jail for more than a month for the heinous, heinous crime of possessing laundry detergent. From the story, it says, quote, for nearly six full weeks, 29-year-old Matt Kroll said he sat inside a Florida jail for a crime he didn't commit. The charge was trafficking heroin. It came with a steep potential punishment and bond, which frightened Kroll, who said an officer mistook laundry detergent for heroin. Subquote, it's surreal when you're sitting in jail with a half million dollar bond and you can't go anywhere knowing that you didn't do anything wrong, Kroll said. In the past, I've gone to jail, but it's been for something where I knew I wasn't going to be there forever. It's a lot different than going to jail and the charge of trafficking of heroin carries a penalty of 25 years in prison. Kroll was arrested by Martin County Sheriff's Deputy Stephen O'Leary, according to WPTV. Sheriff William Snyder says the officer has now been fired 
after an investigation uncovered that at least 11 people he put in jail for drug charges were actually innocent. Subquote, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, just based on the law of possibilities, there's always a possibility that one bad apple will slip through. Jesus Christ. I hadn't read that quote when I was doing the copy and paste from the story. I'm just now reading it. I hate the fucking bad apple narrative. Uh, but that's from the Sheriff Snyder. Story continues, quote, Kroll was sleeping inside his van in a parking lot before the arrest. Officers got word of a suspicious van and went to go check it out. That's when police say O'Leary found a bag of... <laughs> A bat shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. A bag of Tide laundry detergent did a field test and claimed the field test proved it was heroin. Now, we've talked about these field tests before. They cannot prove things are drugs. You know, we talked about Bayes' theorem. The odds of a false positive are astronomical. They can be used to exclude drugs. If a field test says this isn't drugs, you can be fairly certain it's not drugs. But if it says it is drugs, that's not good enough because it's still highly likely uh, that it's not. So that guy's now been released after spending a month and a half in jail at taxpayer expense. That was out of Florida. In Georgia, we have a story out of Albany. Now, this is actually an old story from last year that we missed. This happened back in August of 2018. I did not see that until uh, this past week when someone retweeted the video. This is a first rule of Fisk case. The first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, a driver in a parking lot of a shopping mall was recording a guy running from police. An officer was basically trying to murder him, trying to run him over, and didn't hit the guy running away, instead hit a parked car from a random shopper. From that 2018 story, it says, quote, The Albany Police Department officer at the center of a viral video showing a cruiser crashing into a parked car has been cleared by APD's Internal Affairs Unit and has returned to work. On July 24th, a mobile phone video showing Officer Matthew Brown's cruiser crash into a parked car in the Albany Mall parking lot was widely shared on social media. Police said in a news release that officers responded to a hit and run at the intersection of two streets you don't care about. Uh, APD said the three suspects left the scene, abandoned their vehicle, and ran from the initial responding patrol officers. The release stated assisting officers observed the defendants running in the parking lot of the mall. The officers attempted to stop one of them, but he continued to run. The release went on to say, subquote, one of the assisting officers drove into the area and the suspect ran into the path of his vehicle. The officer jammed his brakes to avoid hitting him, but his car slid into the passenger side rear quarter panel of a black 2014 Nissan Altima. Now I'm going to interject here. The video does not match with that particular statement. You'll go watch it for yourself. I'm going to give you a link to the video. It's worse than it, it... This is like a recurring theme. The video is worse than the news release says it is. The story continues. Quote, Officer Brown was placed on administrative leave with pay, pending the outcome of an investigation. Uh, we call that paid vacation, by the way. Uh, APD officials also said there is no dash cam of the incident. Surprise! I don't know why that is, but thankfully we have a bystander who decided to record everything. Uh, Albany police released the following statement Monday, subquote, the Albany Police Department's Internal Affairs Unit has completed a thorough investigation of the incident at the Albany Mall, where Officer Matthew Brown struck a parked vehicle while pursuing a suspect eluding police. 
The investigation revealed there was no intent by Officer Brown to strike the fleeing suspect with his vehicle. Officer Brown has returned to duty. The incident will be reviewed further by the City of Albany's Accident Review Board. Now, one of my law school classmates happens to work in that particular township uh, as part of their public defender's office. And I asked him, I said, hey, was there any follow-up on this in terms of what happened? And so far as he knows, nothing actually happened with it, which is not a surprise. But again, it's worse than it sounds, but I'm going to let you judge for yourself. I'm going to give you a link to the video on Twitter, and you make your own judgment and decide whether or not that looked like the officer trying to not hit somebody slamming on his brakes to avoid a car, or if it was an officer trying to murder someone because he was pissed and ended up colliding in the car in the process. So that was out of Georgia in Kansas in Roland Park. Uh, We have the third rule of Fisk in the same episode. Now, third rule of Fisk, again, is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions because we hear the exact same bullshit again and again and again and again and again. Uh, In this case, you have another man who's been in prison for years for a crime he did not commit. From the story, it says, quote, a man who spent 17 years in prison for crimes committed by a lookalike has been awarded a $1.1 million settlement by the state of Kansas. Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt announced Wednesday that he had agreed to a resolution with Richard Jones, who was imprisoned in 2000, for an aggravated robbery he did not commit. Jones was convicted of trying to steal a purse in the parking lot of a Walmart in Roland Park, Kansas, in 1999. There was no physical evidence, no DNA, no fingerprints that linked him to the crime. And he had an alibi. He was at his girlfriend's home in Kansas City. But two eyewitnesses misidentified him, telling police that either a light-skinned Hispanic or African-American man committed the crime and picking him out of six mugshots. He was released last year after the Midwest Innocence Project and the University of Kansas School of Law helped uncover the wrongful conviction. A judge ordered him released after witnesses, including the robbery victim, could not tell him and another inmate in the system apart, a Ricky Amos. Amos and Jones are close in age, have similar skin tone, the same facial hair, and cornrows. Amos cannot be prosecuted now because the statute of limitations has expired. In addition to compensation, Jones was granted a certificate of innocence, counseling, permission to participate in the state health care benefits program for plan years 2019 and 2020, and records of his arrest and conviction were ordered expunged, and any biological samples associated with his mistaken conviction are ordered destroyed, according to the attorney general's office. Now, cool. Very good for him that this is an outcome eventually, but ponder this. The guy spent 17 years in prison, and he's only getting $1.1 million. Now, compare that with Senator Rand Paul, who was tackled by his neighbor, ended up with a few broken ribs, and got $650,000, give or take a few. So six ribs is half of 17 years as far as how we value how this stuff goes in this country. It's, it's pretty fucked up. We'll give you a link to that story in the show notes. It truly is ridiculous. Uh, in Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice out of Washington Parish, five deputies have now been indicted for helping to facilitate the rape of an inmate. From that story, it says, quote, five deputies and 16 inmates, 16, my goodness, 16, one six inmates were indicted Monday, January 28th by a Washington Parish grand jury in connection with a rape and beating that occurred at the parish jail last year. 
in September, Louisiana State Police discovered evidence that the deputies and inmates were involved in the beating of an inmate and the rape of another inmate between July 26th and September 5th. The news came weeks after WVUE Fox 8 reported the story of a woman who learned her son had been sexually assaulted at the facility. The former deputies charged with malfeasance in office for, subquote, intentionally performing a duty lawfully required of him or her in an unlawful manner or by intentionally refusing or failing to perform any duty lawfully required of him or her uh, are as follows. Frank Smith of Mount Hermon, Elliot Smith of Mandeville, John Donaldson of Franklinton, Pamela Willis of Tylertown, and Austin Rogers of Franklinton. Both Frank Smith and Elliot Smith were also charged with aggravated second-degree battery for using a power cord to harm the rape and beating victim. Over in Maryland, we have the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary, and this is this is just fantastic arrogance on the part of the Baltimore PD. So basically, well, let me give you the story. Story says, "Quote: The Baltimore State's Attorney's Office will no longer prosecute marijuana possession cases, regardless of the amount possessed." State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby announced at a press conference Tuesday. Subquote, it's a new day in Baltimore, and I believe this is the time that we make real that we seek justice over convictions, Mosby said, that we make right the wrongs of the past and to make Baltimore a leader in redefining public safety. Uh, possession arrests will not be charged regardless of weight or criminal history of the person arrested, Mosby said. Possession with the intent to distribute will only be prosecuted if additional evidence is presented, scales, baggies, or other tools of packaging and selling drugs, or officer testimony of witnessing drug sales. First-time drug distribution offenders will be referred to the Aim to Be More diversion program rather than incarceration. The program is a three-year probation before judgment course that attempts to help offenders avoid rearrest and add value to their communities through community service, job readiness, workforce development, and life skills coaching. Subquote, if someone is arrested for simple marijuana possession, we will release them without charges. The Baltimore City Police Department is not on the same page as the state's attorney's office. Releasing a statement Tuesday afternoon saying, subquote, Baltimore police will continue to make arrests for illegal marijuana possession unless and until the state legislature changes the law regarding marijuana possession. Now, ponder that. I understand the whole argument the laws need to be changed through the legislature. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. That's why we have a tripartite system of government. But the prosecutor has what is called prosecutorial discretion. And in the case of Baltimore, a bunch of people are getting fucking murdered. So it makes sense that you would allocate your resources to stopping murderers rather than focusing on harassing people for weed charges so that you can make money off of them. And yet, when the prosecuting attorney, the elected DA, recognizes that, the police say, ha, fuck you, we're going to keep harassing citizens rather than solve real crimes. It is ridiculous like it is the height of arrogance on the part of the police it's going to waste resources it's going to needlessly destroy people's lives and worse actual murders are going to go unsolved and then years from now when the murder rate is still sky high these fuckers are going to blame black lives matter or whoever else because they feel like they can't supposedly do their job when they're busy harassing people over marijuana it's ridiculous that's out of maryland Uh, and in massachusetts in boston This is another one of the third rule in the same story situations because we have another guy who spent a fuckload of years of prison for a crime he did not commit. From that story, it says, quote, Fred Clay 
who was wrongfully convicted of murder and spent almost 38 years in Massachusetts prisons, will receive a $1 million settlement from the state, the highest amount allowed under a new state law. The settlement with the Massachusetts Attorney General was finalized Tuesday in Suffolk Superior Court, the same courthouse where Clay's conviction was vacated in 2017 and his freedom granted at age 53. Subquote is a great day for justice and is a great day for Mr. Clay, said Jeffrey Harris, one of Clay's attorneys who sued the state in June for compensation. The Commonwealth was willing to pay the full million dollars that's available under the law, and it does appear that in this case the law worked the way it was supposed to. Clay was arrested in 1979, just weeks after turning 16, and charged as an adult for the murder of a cab driver in Roslindale. He was convicted of first-degree murder based on testimony from a witness named Richard DeWire, who identified Clay only after he had been put under hypnosis by a police detective. Let me repeat that for emphasis. Who identified Clay only after he had been put under hypnosis. Jesus Christ by a police detective. After his release, Clay received no assistance from the state during his first 17 months outside prison and had struggled to find a good paying job in decent housing. No shit, because he still shows up as a fucking murderer on Google and whatever else. God, this whole story is fucked up. Uh, story continues, quote, Clay's lawyers waited until June to file a lawsuit for compensation because the state law was rewritten just last year to raise the payment limit from $500,000 to $1 million. Under the state's formula, people like Fred Clay, who served long sentences, receive a much lower per year payout. Clay's settlement equals about $26,000 for each year he was wrongfully incarcerated. Subquote, would anyone take $26,000 to be in prison for a year? Asked Clay's attorney. Probably not. No shit. Keep in mind, y'all, that is now the third wrongful conviction case just in this episode, just this past week. Those aren't old stories like the guy trying to run over the guy at the mall. You know, these are just from this past week, wrongful conviction cases where in two of the cases, guys are getting payouts. In the third case, an appeals court has said, hey, this guy's actually innocent. You know, our system just completely fucks up, destroying people's lives. Meanwhile, the actual people who did it get to enjoy their freedom, never see the inside of a courtroom. And when all is said and done and we realize we fucked up, the politicians just say, oops. Have a couple thousand dollars a year for your time spent in jail that all the taxpayers have been paying for. You know, if, if you could find me a politician who runs on a platform of not wasting taxpayer money because we have fewer wrongful convictions, I would vote for that person. If you could figure out how to get us fewer wrongful convictions so we're not paying tax money to house the wrong person in prison and then paying more tax money to help them get back on their feet after we've taken 40 fucking years of their lives, I would vote for that person. Uh, so that was out of Massachusetts in Missouri, out of St. Louis. This story, holy shit. So I've got two and a half pages of outline just on this story. I'm not going to give you the whole thing because there's no way I can do it justice. It's this story about this, this off-duty St. Louis police officer, Caitlin Alex, married, not working, in the home of an on-duty officer that she worked with regularly and that officer's partner for that particular shift, and then she ends up shot dead. That's the story. St. Louis police officer off-duty in an on-duty officer's apartment with his other on-duty patrol buddy, she ends up dying. Initially, the police story was that it was an accident. 
you will learn that that was a lie. But I'm going to give you that particular excerpt. It says, an off-duty St. Louis police officer was shot and killed early Thursday when another officer mishandled a gun at a home in the Carindellet neighborhood. The officer, Caitlin Alex, 24, was in the living room of the home of another officer who was on duty, but home just before one in the morning when he, subquote, mishandled a firearm and shot Alex in the chest, police said in a written statement. Police Chief John Hayden said two male officers who were on duty went to one of their homes during their shift. Alex, who was off duty, stopped by and was shot in what Hayden called, subquote, the accidental discharge of a weapon. A gun was recovered by investigators at the scene. There was no word on why the officers were all at an officer's home while two of them were on duty. When policy requires them to be patrolling in their assigned district, it's not clear who owned the weapon. Hayden would not say how many shots had been fired, how many times Alex had been shot, nor whether anyone was in custody. So that was right after it happened. That was the next day's news story. They had a news conference. So the police have had time to figure out what the hell had happened. And they gave you this story, and you will be shocked, I'm sure, to know this story was bullshit. Because the next day, the story changed. They now claim that it was a game of Russian roulette, that these two on-duty officers and this off-duty officer, who obviously was not wearing a Kevlar vest, just decided to randomly play Russian roulette with each other. From that story, it says, quote, a police officer who shot and killed another officer early Thursday was charged with involuntary manslaughter and armed criminal action, both felonies. Let me note. Involuntary manslaughter implies that you didn't kill them voluntarily. Shooting at someone is a voluntary act, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, Officer Nathaniel Hendren is accused in the shooting of Officer Caitlin Alex while they were playing with a gun. According to the statement of probable cause, Hendren and Alex were playing with firearms. Hendren took all the bullets out of a revolver and then put one back in, spun the cylinder, pointed it away, and pulled the trigger. The gun did not fire. Alex then took the gun, pointed it at Hendren, and pulled the trigger. Hendren then took the gun again and pulled the trigger. This time it fired, striking Alex in the chest. Now, they've described this as a Russian roulette-style game. Folks, that's not how Russian roulette works. Russian roulette is when you're trying to shoot yourself. You have one bullet in the barrel, so you have a one in six chance. You pull it, and if it doesn't fire, you put the fucking gun down. Because then, if you do it again, you have a 1 in 5 chance. You do it again, you then have a 1 in 4 chance. All of a sudden, you get increasing likelihood that the gun is going to fucking fire. So, first lie, accident, second story, Russian roulette. Well, then they release the mugshot of the officer who had killed this other officer. And he's got a black eye, like someone beat the everlasting shit out of him. The story there was that he had supposedly bashed his head into the window of the police cruiser after he'd been arrested, but unless the police cruiser had a fucking boxing glove on it, that shit's not fucking possible, okay? So go check out his particular mugshot. Well, then, the latest development is you find out that the police blocked having a blood test done by claiming to the DA that the hospital would not honor a search warrant to allow them to draw the blood, which is bullshit. Hospitals comply with search warrants all the fucking time for blood draws. It's just standard practice all over the fucking country. But from that story, it says, quote, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kimberly Gardner on Monday questioned whether police tried to block drug and alcohol testing of on-duty St. Louis police officers who were present when an off-duty colleague was shot last week. The letter to Chief John Hayden and Public Safety Director Jimmy Edwards says there was subquote probable cause at the scene that drugs or alcohol may be a contributing factor in a potential crime. In the letter released Tuesday, Gardner says a police lieutenant erroneously told her office that a hospital would not honor a 
search warrant for the officer's blood. Gardner wrote that hospitals commonly accept search warrants in criminal cases. The letter says urine and breath tests were later performed, but not a blood test, which is more exact. They later learned that the samples that had been obtained by internal affairs were done in a way that will block their use in a criminal prosecution. Officers generally must comply with internal affairs investigations, but that compelled testimony can't be used against them in court. Gardner said the testing, subquote, appears as an obstructionist tactic to prevent us from understanding the state of the officers during the commission of the alleged crime. Gardner's letter also complains that police officials initially characterized the shooting as a subquote accident or an incident involving the subquote mishandling of a firearm which Gardner called a, subquote, inappropriate predisposed conclusion about the potential outcome of a case is particularly troublesome given that the force investigative unit is required to conduct objective investigations of officer-involved shootings. So that's the latest out of St. Louis. We'll see how this particular case turns out. My, my guess is there's something more nefarious there than, hey, we were just drunk at this guy's apartment shooting a pistol for sport. Uh, So out of North Carolina, we have three more cases in addition to the Fourth Circuit opinion. Out of Bryson City, this is so fucking stupid. So basically, the Bryson City police coordinated with uh, ALE, Alcohol Law Enforcement, and they basically did a six-month undercover operation against a gas station openly selling glass pipes, bragged about it on Facebook, and got fucking roasted, as they should have. From the story, it says, quote, state and local investigators spent six months on an undercover operation and to a convenience store's display of glass pipes and bongs in Bryson City, according to a Facebook post from the State Bureau of Investigation. The work led officers to seize more than 1,000 pipes from the store in this western North Carolina mountain town, but they made no arrests and say the investigation is continuing. According to the FBI's post, subquote, a six-month undercover operation and joint effort by the Bryson City Police Department and North Carolina Alcohol Law Enforcement resulted in the raid of a local convenience store and the seizure of over 1,000 illegal methamphetamine and marijuana pipes. Notice that a glass pipe uh, is not an illegal methamphetamine and marijuana pipe. It's just a glass pipe. The agencies are getting heat on the Facebook post, and I'm going to put that in past tense because they actually were smart enough to take the Facebook post down eventually, uh, with users accusing the investigators of wasting taxpayer money and mocking them for the six-month sting. Subquote, how many rape kits were ignored so you could waste money doing this? A Facebook user asked in one of the more than 2,000 comments on the post. Subquote, it took y'all six months to walk into a gas station. Another reader mocked. Subquote, just think about the fact that these clowns are proud that they spent six months wasting taxpayer money raiding a gas station, most likely located in a low-income area, to get some bowls and bongs off the street. Great work, guys. The war on drugs is officially won, another user posted. Uh, And yet another said, subquote, we're in the middle of an opioid and heroin epidemic, and you guys spent six months going after a gas station that sells glass pipes legally? This is shameful, and you should be embarrassed. Uh, Evidently, they were, because like I said, they deleted the post. Out of Charlotte, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg police have had to arrest yet another one of their officers for attacking a woman. From that story, it says, quote, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department said it has charged one of its own with sexual battery. Police said Officer Michael Santiago was served a criminal summons after being accused of inappropriately touching a woman at a club in Uptown Charlotte. 
Police said the woman reported a man touched her inappropriately, and officers working off-duty outside the club recognized the man as Santiago. CMPD said detectives conducted interviews and gathered evidence before presenting the case to a magistrate. Police said Santiago, who was assigned to the Central Division as a patrol officer, is now on unpaid administrative leave. He has been employed by CMPD since June 27, 2016. Uh, out of Fayetteville, a Fayetteville police officer molested a kid and then killed himself. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A Fayetteville police officer who was facing criminal charges involving a juvenile apparently shot himself Sunday in the median of Interstate 95 in Wilson County, the State Bureau of Investigation said. The SBI identified the officer as 31-year-old Wade Lane Lee Jr. The Fayetteville Police Department said Monday it received a criminal complaint against one of its officers late Friday afternoon. The department did not identify the officer as Lee, but said the officer died on Sunday outside the city and referred questions about his death to the SBI. The police department said Monday that it was not revealing the officer's identity because it could subquote re-victimize the person who reported the allegations. This sidebar, it's total fucking bullshit, by the way. Uh, after the complaint was made on Friday, the police department's youth services unit started a criminal investigation, and the internal affairs unit started an internal investigation, according to a statement released by that department. Subquote, as a result of the criminal investigation, detectives with our youth services unit obtained warrants for the arrest of the involved officer. It's Said. The warrants have now been withdrawn because he is dead. Uh, good riddance, number one. But you'll notice there are certain groups that have certain agendas to push, and it's interesting to see who they count among their stats. So the National Gun Violence Memorial, which promotes gun control, has already included Lee on their list of victims of gun violence, and that you know he took his own life, so he is a victim. But the Officer Down Memorial page, who has all sorts of questionable officers listed, they have not included him as one of their line of duty deaths. So it's just interesting. Now, they might include him later. We'll see. But I thought it was interesting to see that play among these different groups and who they will claim as one of their own. Uh, so those are all the stories out of North Carolina. In South Carolina, there is a fantastic, fantastic multi-part expose on that state's civil asset forfeiture system. And what you will discover, which again, I know is going to shock you, uh, is that it's designed to benefit the government and that taxpayers get fucked. From that story, and this is the, like I said, it's a multi-part thing. There are two separate main parts and then the main parts have like five subparts a piece. So this is the beginning snippets of the second part. We'll give you links to it all in the show notes. But it says, quote, Errors by police and prosecutors are costing people their possessions or denying them a chance to even fight for the money, vehicles, or property seized under civil law. The taken investigation by the Greenville News and Anderson Independent Mail uncovered a litany of problems with a forfeiture system that puts power over personal property in the hands of cops and the state. And it plays out in civil proceedings where citizens aren't provided an attorney or given the right to a speedy trial. It's something Tanya Flythe Harkless now knows well. When Greenville Sheriff's deputies arrested her son David on drug trafficking charges in July 2017, they knew the truck he was driving belonged to his mother in Maryland. A deputy said in the incident report that her name was listed on the title as the registered owner. But that didn't stop police from seizing the vehicle. And when it came time to notify interested parties in the forfeiture action, it's not clear the authorities tried to contact Flythe Harkless at all. 
that's despite her call to the sheriff's office the day after her son's arrest or the two letters her son wrote from jail telling authorities the truck belonged to his mom. In December 2017, four months after the case was filed, prosecutors asked the judge to forfeit the Ford F-350 by default because no one had come forward to dispute the case. The judge denied the request. She had gone through the file and seen David's letters. She told prosecutors to set a hearing. Still, no one sent Flythe Harkless a summons until a Greenville News reporter met with circuit solicitor Walt Wilkins and asked about the case. The court summons was finally mailed to her the next day. Her story is not rare. The taken investigation identified hundreds of instances where property owners never received notice of forfeiture cases, sometimes because serious errors were made by the prosecutors tracking them down. In one Simpsonville case, the solicitor's office sent a woman's summons to the wrong city. Another time in Georgetown, authorities said they couldn't locate a man who turned out to be incarcerated. State law requires agencies to check the prison system when they're notifying owners of a case. In a Greenville case, an assistant solicitor said a company named as a defendant in a case could not be found, but a reporter reached the company after a quick Google search. Notification errors we discovered pointed to a larger pattern uncovered after months of interviews and research, a lax system of oversight in South Carolina. We found fear among owners of confronting the police and numerous mistakes among law enforcement that compound the barriers to regaining property. The result is that forfeiture overwhelmingly ends in the government's favor. More than 70% of forfeiture cases filed against individual property owners from 2014 to 2016 were won by default, the investigation found. That means the police never had to persuade a judge or jury about the merits of a claim. Go through and read it. Like, it's a long read. There's a lot of stuff. But holy shit. Civil asset forfeiture, to my mind, is a violation of the United States Constitution. We've talked about that before. Hopefully the Supreme Court will agree. We'll see what happens. But until then, it's incumbent on state legislators, including the ones down in South Carolina, to fix shit like this, because this is crazy. Like, an F-350, that's an expensive truck, I know, because I looked into getting one one day. The idea that you can just take that and not provide any notice, because you're not even trying, it, it, it boggles my mind. It truly does. So that's out of South Carolina. Uh, out of Texas, our last story of this particular mini-pod Houston police decided to kill two middle-aged folks and kill a dog because supposedly they were selling meth, even though there was no actual evidence of that in the home. Uh, Out of Reason, which has compiled several different news reports into this particular opinion piece, so just keep in mind this is an opinion piece, but the links to all the news stories are in it. They do good compilations. That's why I link to them. Uh, It says, quote, On Monday evening in Houston, A dozen armed men broke into the home of Dennis Tuttle and Regina Nicholas, a middle-aged couple who had lived in the house for at least two decades. The first man through the door, who was armed with a shotgun, used it to kill one of the couple's dogs. Tuttle responded to the home invasion by grabbing a revolver and shooting the man who had the shotgun, who collapsed on a sofa in the living room. As Nicholas tried to disarm the intruder, his accomplices shot her. Tuttle returned fire, and by the end of the shootout, he and his wife were both dead. Four of the assailants were hit by gunfire, while a fifth injured his knee. Many people will be reassured to learn that the men who stormed into the house on Harding Street were police officers serving a drug warrant. Uh, It goes on from there. Skip a little bit further down. At a press conference on Monday night, 
Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo initially said the address of the raid, which began around 5 p.m., uh, was in the 7800 block of Hardy Street, about 12 miles from the actual location. Acevedo said Hardy Street three times seemed to be reading the address from a stack of papers. By the end of the press conference, he had corrected himself, saying Harding Street, which address was on the search warrant. Uh, Acevedo said the plainclothes narcotics cops serving the warrant, subquote, announced themselves as Houston police officers while simultaneously breaching the front door. Meanwhile, uniformed officers waiting in or near a marked police unit outside the house, subquote, hit the siren and hit the lights so they knew that police officers were there. Now, maybe that's true, but it is possible that Tuttle did not hear the siren or did not connect it to the men bursting into his house. It's also plausible that the officer's announcement, which by Acevedo's account happened at the same moment that they were knocking down the door, did not register amid the noise, confusion, and shotgun blasts. Subquote, immediately upon breaching the door, the officers came under fire from one or two suspects inside the house, Acevedo said on Monday. But as he revealed during a press conference the next day, it was actually the police who fired first, killing the dog. When a reporter asked whether Tuttle and Nicholas knew they were being raided by police, Acevedo said, subquote, a lot of drug houses have surveillance systems that are better than what businesses use because, subquote, they want to know when the cops are coming. But contrary to that implication, KHOU, the CBS affiliate in Houston, reported that the house had no security cameras. Although, subquote, a house next door to the Tuttles does have surveillance video, and, subquote, police took that footage for evidence. Acevedo said the officers involved in the raid were not wearing body cameras. According to Acevedo, the investigation that led to the raid, subquote, began because a neighbor had the courage to say, we're not going to put up with this. We think they're dealing dope out of this house. That tip was passed on to the narcotics division, which, subquote, was able to actually determine the street-level narcotics dealing of black tar heroin. Acevedo said police, subquote, actually bought black tar heroin at that location, although, subquote, we didn't find any on Monday. Got news for you. I, I represent drug dealers for a living. There's always more drugs. If there's not drugs, it means they're not drug dealers. Instead, the search discovered an unspecified amount of marijuana, which, spoiler alert, is not heroin, either the regular variety or the black tar variety. Uh, subquote, the neighborhood thanked our officers because it was a drug house. They described it as a problem location. Uh, but according to the Houston Chronicle, Tuttle and Nicholas had been married for 21 years, kept to themselves, and didn't seem like troublemakers. Tuttle's sister, Elizabeth Ferrari, told the paper she talked to her brother last week. He was a disabled 59-year-old Navy veteran, and everything seemed fine. She had never seen any indication that he and his wife were involved with drugs. Subquote, I don't buy it at all, Ferrari said. Not one hot minute. Other relatives and friends offered similar disbelief. KHOU reported that Tuttle had no criminal record, while the only mark against Nicholas was a misdemeanor theft by check charge years ago involving $145. After she paid restitution, the charge was dismissed. One neighbor told KHOU they never had company, while another said there was never traffic at that house. Never. Neighbors interviewed by the station said, subquote, they never noticed suspicious activity. Now, again, I represent street pharmacists for a living. If you have a trap house, there's going to be traffic to and from it as people go there to buy their drugs. And yet none of the neighbors happen to notice this taking place, despite what the chief has said. So keep in mind, the chief has now shared with the public all of this bullshit that has been dutifully regurgitated by the media. And then at least two of the outlets, 
the Houston Chronicle and KHOU have said, wait a minute, this doesn't jive with what we're being told. That doesn't stop the police officers union from weighing in. I just want you to know that. So the story continues, quote, Joe Gamaldi, president of the Houston police officers union, seized on the occasion to condemn people who criticize cops. So, quote, we are sick and tired of having targets on our back. We are sick and tired of having dirt bags trying to take our lives when all we're trying to do is protect this community and protect our families. Enough is enough. And if you're the ones that are out there spreading the rhetoric, the police officers are the enemy, well, just know we've all got your number now. We're going to be keeping track of all of y'all, and we're going to be making sure we're going to be holding you accountable every time you stir the pot on our police officers. This is the, the absurdity of that statement. Just just let that sink in. Back up 15 seconds and replay it if you need to hear it. Uh, story continues, quote, Tuttle did not go looking for cops to shoot. He was responding to a violent attack by men he may not have even recognized as police officers, men who knocked his door in, repeatedly fired a shotgun, killed his dog, and fatally shot his wife. If police officers don't want to be portrayed as the enemy, they should stop acting like the enemy. No shit. So we'll give you a link to that story and reason. It's a very good compilation with links to several other news stories. They do good work. All right, so folks, that is it for this particular episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are hoping to be back on a regular rotation on this coming Monday. Uh, enjoy Super Bowl Sunday. I have no interest in the particular teams, but I am one of those people that will watch for the commercials. And on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. Have a blessed week and weekend, and we will talk to you on Monday. Take care. 